Good day to you all, my fellow bootleggers. You're currently listening to episode two of Bootleggers Podcast on Bootleggers Broadcast, your home of sounds from the speakeasy on Live 365. I'm your host, Mike, and I'm here to talk about all the milestones of Bootleggers Broadcast. In this episode, I'll be talking about obscure vintage hits with an old friend of mine, Adam, an expert of all things old. Hi, Adam. (laughs) I was like, oh, when do I come in? Uh, hello, everybody. Hello, bootleggers. It is I. It's Adam. Young Adam, a host of uh, Once Upon a Time, our college radio. We were DJing at the same time, but Adam is like two years my senior, I think. Right? Yeah, just I, I think so. I met I. Yeah, it has to be two years because I think I met you as a coming as an incoming freshman in my junior year. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm just going to totally reveal something that i did the other day because i was going down a uh, nostalgia road but you know that um playlist you have called full library <laughs> yeah i went into it and i wanted to sort by date and i was like hmm i wonder how adam's musical taste has changed around the time that i started and so like i was scrolling through and it was like getter like um general edm like duck sauce you know avalanches yeah. and so on and then suddenly, boom, like it's Glenn Miller, Duke Ellington, <laughs> Benny Goodman, just like in a in a rapid succession around the time that I started. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were definitely a huge influence on that for sure. Um, but I think you and I are very kindred spirits in the sense that when we have like a phase, when we discover something new musically where we're just like super passionate about it, like, oh, this is so cool. I need to figure out everything <laughs> that ever happened with this thing. Uh, it just kind of becomes your identity for a good chunk of of time. Absolutely. I know that we're going to be talking about like obscure um, music from circa like uh, 50s through the 70s ish. It's it's funny you mentioned that because like most of my life, I deliberately did not listen to the Beatles. And then like maybe a year or two ago, I wanted to figure out what they sounded like. And, and like for a good couple of months, I was just like, wow, look at all this music. And oh, absolutely. Then, I just kind of gave up after a while and went back to my usual shtick. But <laughs> I think the hardest thing about music discovery in general is just that there's so much of it. It's like you kind of underestimate how much music there is to the point where there's there's literally no way you're ever going to hear even like a significant fraction of it in your lifetime. Yeah. And that's kind of the point of the segment, I think, right? Talking about the yeah. stuff that uh, slips through the cracks, which is pretty awesome. Exactly. So like there's a uh, playlist that I put together for the radio station, it changes every so often, every couple of hours, and it's, I guess, ironic right now that we're recording on a Thursday, because uh, the show that ties in directly to what we're talking about usually airs from 3 to 6 p.m. on Thursdays. It's called The Crate Diggers, and it's all about obscure music that nobody knows about from that time era. I want to talk about like a bit of the history and a bit of like why... Uh, this thing had happened so I guess like the first question would be like and we're just gonna like roll off the cuff but how do you think there were so many different musical experiments that sure tried but they ended up just not working out at that time I think in a lot of ways I mean because we actually before we started the podcast we were just talking about culture and counterculture and a bunch of different movements that music has gone through in general and it's kind of a cliched thing to say, but I feel like in a lot of cases, the world just isn't ready for whatever, uh, you know, for whatever's happening in the current moment. And it's actually kind of crazy if you think about it. I would encourage anyone listening, and I would encourage you, Mike, as well. Um, anything that you think of in the moment that you know as being like a legend or you know as being like this super famous, this super influential record or movie or video game or whatever piece of media uh, you can think of right? Compare its legacy today to how it was first received when it originally came out. And I guarantee you, like eight out of 10 times, the initial reception of those projects is not going to be good. And I think that's mainly just because, you know, it's a change from what people are used to. When you say something is influential, it's influential for a reason. That's because it kind of inspires a movement or it kind of inspires a shift in something, or it's, it's something that generally people have not seen before. And I think in most cases, uh, you can't really assume 
that human beings, especially large groups of human beings, are readily going to be able to accept that kind of change, you know? There was a big counterculture movement during the 60s of with like psychedelic art style and and clothing, lifestyle and music and all of these different themes all coming together and I think a lot of people certainly took chances artistically at that point and a lot of people were I guess this would tie into like garage rock but like a lot of people were quite literally experimenting from their homes in hopes that they would be picked up Absolutely. So I guess that's like a a good starting point from all of that. But I guess like part of my question is like, how did these people come up with such a, a niche sound? That's a good question. And, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to think about because every human brain. And this is something that I poured a lot of thought into, especially during those sleepless nights where your brain is just like, hey, you want to go to sleep? No, here's some random thought. <laughs> um, but it, it's so weird to think about how we all have different tastes in general, right? Cause we all, we all think about like, yeah, we're all human beings. We all come from the same sort of genetic code, but the variant, like j- just kind of like the variations in the way that we perceive things. It's not really easy for one person to explain what they like or what they understand to be good to another person in a lot of cases, because the other person might just have their brain completely differently wired. Like they literally just cannot understand what is appealing about something to another person. And so I feel like that's an obstacle that I run into a lot. And I feel like you probably run into it a lot, too, where, you know, if you, if you try to show somebody something or if you try and point out that something that you like listening to is, is good or is interesting and somebody else that you're talking to just doesn't find it interesting. I think a big part of it is just the fact that whatever that person is trying to achieve, they are the only ones to an extent that understand it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like if you, if you, if you take like a death grip song, for example, right. And, and you, and you show like, if you show anything by death grips, uh, to any other person, it's like even people who like death grips, I, I think would, you know, agree that it's, it's aggressive. It's super all over the place. It's super avant-garde in the sense that like, it doesn't really sound like anything else that you've heard before, but to some people that's really, really interesting. And it's a really good time for them to go in depth and in detail and, you know, listen to this stuff and to other people, it just sounds like a bunch of nonsense. You yeah. Know? So you I get, think, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, like you ever get into like a space where you're, you're trying to show off your friends. You're like, guys, check this out. I, I just heard this new album for the first time, like some really obscure, like avant-garde off the wall thing. And then you're sitting there, you're showing the song to the person and they're just like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, mm, that's really good. Yeah. And you're just like, like looking at them. You're just like, oh, it gets better in a minute. I swear. Yeah, you're like, and then the, like, the minute like, passes, and you're like staring at them, and nothing's happening. You're just like, oh god, <laughs> what have I done? Yeah, that's always a very tragic moment. But yeah, I agree. It's like the the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or something like that. There's like um, influences behind that type of a sound as to why people enjoy it. Like, obviously, there was a lot of folk music in that time era of the 60s. There was, like, your R&B Motown records and a lot of garage rock. But I guess my question to you is, why do you enjoy this kind of music? So, I love how I just made the point about how it's hard to to explain things. And you want to hit me with the, okay, so explain. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, no, it... I think it really just comes down to the idea of it. Sound is one of those things. It, it's a human, well, not a human concept. It's a natural concept, right? That humans have kind of come to understand in a certain way. And so it's always been really interesting to me how sound, which is not by any means like a physical thing. It's, it's kind of, it, I mean, it is a physical thing in the sense that, you know, it's vibrations, but it's like, how the hell did we ever figure out how to harness sound? in a way that sounded good to us, sounded enjoyable to us, something that we would actually want to sit down and just listen to for hours on end. Like, how did we even create music in the first place? Like, Mm -hmm. why is music even a concept? And so I think that thought kind of informs a lot of the listening that I do in the sense of, okay, how can I even say what I'm listening to is music? What makes it music? Like, what, what, where is this person who is making this weird thing, this new avant-garde thing coming from where they're saying, this is music. This is the kind of way that I like to harness sound 
And, you know, I, I'm hoping that you guys like the way that I'm harnessing the sound in the first place. Because going back to, like, the Death Grips example, for, for example, you know, it's like, there are people that like that harsh, abrasive approach to music. I mean, I didn't think that I would be that way um, when I first started listening to music, seriously. But over time, I found that a lot of music that is very harsh and abrasive does appeal to me. And I think a lot of what, what that has to do with is just energy, really, just kind of like the vibe of a song. I like things that are chaotic, but that you can still kind of understand. It's, it's part of the reason why I like Igloo Ghost so much. It's part of the reason why I like thrash metal and sludge metal so much. Uh, it's just kind of trying to find order in the chaos. And I think a big part of why that's interesting to me is just like thinking about the people who made it, right? It's like you wanted to make this super chaotic thing, but in their mind, it's probably really not as different as stuff that they grew up listening to. During the 60s and 70s, I would argue that there were some genres of music that were more experimental and bolder than others. Specifically, what I'm talking about is through the the playlist that I have that has all of these different kind of unknown artists from the 60s and 70s, for example, some of those subgenres included like Motown music and um, rock music and things like that. And I would argue that, for example, Motown was less of a risk-taking kind of thing. And the Motown Records formula was trying to play it safe for a while. And they were the whole idea was like, incorporate your vocals from the 50s, all of your doo-wop kind of musical themes, and incorporate just a hint of different ideas all at the same time, including just like a, a taste of rock into it and things like that just to play it safe and you would create like a a well-made genre of music that you can kind of predict what is going to happen before it even does whereas your psychedelic rock your acid rock and things like that were more so willing to take unconventional methods to compose wouldn't wouldn't you agree yeah i think that's a great point to make and it's pretty it's pretty interesting to think about when it comes to you know, counterculture in general, or like changes or shifts in musical, uh, in musical genres, because that is a good point. I think a lot of the time when a genre takes a more gradual approach to change, it's more readily accepted in the moment. But I think I would argue that in many cases, it doesn't leave as large of an impact. Because don't get me wrong, I mean, Motown has definitely left a large impact in the sense that, I mean, it, it was a whole movement, it was a whole, you know, subdivision of music that people still celebrate today. But I feel like something like that doesn't really ever, in, in most cases, you know, live up to, the, uh, live up to something more radical, like a, a, a more radical change, like the counterculture movement in the 1950s with rock and roll. Because rock and roll was so impactful then, people look back at it as this huge, legendary, influential thing, even if by today's standards, it's pretty tame, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. It was because... Up until that point, your your menu of music was like big band era jazz, kind of progressive jazz, and just your bare bones minimum of like gospel music that would transcend into doo-wop music. So truly, when they started coming out with electric guitar and, and ripping through blues music into something completely different, it was like, whoa, crazy. And obviously that would become classic rock, which would become even more aggressive subgenres of classic rock, heavy metal, grunge, etc. It was a, a, a seed into what would become a very large blossoming thing for music. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think it's really interesting when younger people, and I mean, I've run into this obstacle a lot as well, uh, because there are plenty of classic acts or classic artists, or classic projects, even specific projects where, you know, they're so revered and they're so, uh, they're so legendary, and I go back to them and I can't really keep my attention on them a lot. And it's because people expect, when you have like this giant legacy attached to something, right, you kind of instill the expectation in people that when they go listen to it, it's going to be the most amazing thing that they've ever heard, or it's going to be the most groundbreaking thing that they've ever heard, and it sounds super simple and rudimentary to them. And that's because, yeah, it's not legendary because, you know, it, it has stood the test of time in the sense of it being unique. 
It's legendary because it set the new standard. And so you go back to something like a Led Zeppelin, you go back to something like a Black Sabbath, right? And you're like, this isn't any different than the stuff I've been hearing in metal music or in rock music, you know, hard rock music for the rest of my life. And it's like, yeah, because that set the standard. And so there are some people that love going back to that music and saying, hey, I recognize this stuff in my music today. That's where it came from. That's crazy. But other people don't really have that that kind of perspective. It's like if you see a, a trope in film and it's like, oh, wow, you're going to do that one again. Ooh, you know, it's like the the classic. Oh, wow. This is the bad guy. He's coming down the stairs. He has the upper hand. He's has the high ground, whatever. Like it's it's predictable now. But back then it was like a Hitchcockian trope that was done for the first time. And theater goers of that era were probably like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And they probably didn't think too hard into it. But I mean, film appreciators of today will go back and go like, of course, why would you not do that? Similarly, musical artists of today will probably reflect on some of those big name people that you were talking about at that time. But I guess it's like, how how do you think those acts uh, um like shown through this whole sea of of different albums and records where truly anybody could have become famous if they were selected through like certain people and put into the mainstream like why led zeppelin why black sabbath why you know yeah and you know it's actually kind of interesting bringing up led zeppelin too because you know, a lot, there's been a lot of discussion about this. Uh, you know, the whole the, the whole Greta Van Fleet thing, right? I don't know. Have you Are you in the loop about that? Or at least back when it was still kind of relevant? No. Greta Van Fleet, and the reason I'm making this connection, Greta Van Fleet is a, is a, is a relatively recent band. I think they formed around like 2012 or something like that. Uh, but they put out an album in 2018, which a lot of people kind of criticized. Because this album sounds pretty much one-to-one like a ripoff of Led Zeppelin. Uh, like, everything from composition from the, to the songwriting. Like, it sounded like... Not, not inspired by Led Zeppelin, but literally like they were taking the Led Zeppelin formula and copying it. Right? And, like, completely, uh, you know, portmanteauing it. But the thing about Led Zeppelin, too, is that people tend to forget that Led Zeppelin kind of got their start <laughs> in the same way. Because a lot of the material off of Led Zeppelin 1 was either heavily inspired or taken from other sources or was, you know, one-to-one ripped off. And that's not to say that that hasn't, you know, that Led Zeppelin is any worse for it because, you know, obviously it's Led Zeppelin. They're one of the most influential rock bands of all time. But Mm -hmm. I think it's something that we need to kind of think about in a lot of time, in a lot of areas where it comes to, like, a lot of the time, influential can sometimes just mean that that is the person that happened to get lucky or happened to get famous for some circumstance. They might not have been the first person to do something like that, but they were just the most publicly visible, if that makes sense. They put their name out there or like there was a a novelty to them that made them stand out among the others. Perhaps like they put on a pretty decent show or like they knew the right people or just happenstance it just turned out that way i guess yeah and i think i think my my thought process here trying to like tie it all back into the you know the topic of the podcast mm-hmm. is just that you know when it comes to people who get famous or when it comes to music acts that oh why did these music acts become famous or why did these experimental musicians not become famous at the time i mean i think in a lot of cases you know, at the end of the day, music is always going to be a subjective thing. You can't really expect every single person in the world to objectively think, oh, Led Zeppelin is one of the most influential, one of the best rock bands of all time. There are plenty of people out there that don't like Led Zeppelin, and that's totally okay because, you know, it's an opinion. It's a musical opinion. And so one of the biggest challenges with music is just kind of going with the flow and playing it by ear because mm-hmm. nothing that you ever do as a musician is going to be guaranteed to become famous, regardless of its quality, regardless of the amount of work that you put into it. Uh, You know, there are plenty of musicians that become famous for (laughs) being terrible, and then they form a cult following because they're so terrible, they're good. It's just a a weird thing to think about. 
I'll but, sure and get into that one soon. Exactly. I know exactly what you're thinking of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it, it's really just context. You know, it's really yeah. just like, is the time right? Is, it, are, is my music in the right place at the right time? If that well, what happens sense. if it's the, the right music at the wrong time, for example, and like in the off chance that like years or even decades down the road, they end up becoming more famous through other means. Like, for example, um, Plunder Phonics artists or artists that like to sample older music, i.e. Um, the Avalanches or DJ Shadow or... Um, you could even say some mainstream artists like Kanye West or something to that effect, where they sample older material. I mean, if you want, if you want, like, kind of an example off the top of my head of something of someone that that did happen with, um, there is a guy named Gary Wilson who was an experimental musician, and he was he was a performance artist too, in the sense that like this was a guy who was very uh, like Gigi Allen or Death Grips or. Another sort of like extremist, not in the sense that he did anything like super disruptive or violent or depraved like a Gigi Allen, but in the sense that his stage presence was something that you went to his show for, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, he made a point to act out on stage to the point where multiple venues wanted to kick him out, right? People went to see him do the antics and stuff, probably more than they went to hear him play his music. And so Gary Wilson put out an album in 1977 called you think you really know me and mm -hmm. basically like three or four years later he just completely retired from being a musician and fell off the face of the planet like oh for real yeah like he was either gonna he, he was either like you know this isn't this isn't going where i wanted it to or something happened in his personal life but for whatever reason um you know he didn't really he didn't really want to continue and i think a big part of that is the fact that that album didn't really get a lot of attention at the time of its release. But the thing is, that album specifically follow it gained a cult following because Beck, uh, you know, good old good old Beck, uh, actually named Gary Wilson as one of his biggest inspirations for the song Where It's At. That song came out in 1996. Mm. It's one of Beck's most famous songs, right? And eventually, you know, people were just like, who the hell is Gary Wilson? Like what yeah. like who is this guy? I've never heard of this guy before. So people looked up the album it kind of garnered a cult following because, you know, for people in the present, it was something that was kind of fresh. It was experimental music. It's something they hadn't heard before. And it definitely wasn't something that people in 1977 had heard before because, you know, nobody really knew what it was. And all of that attention that Gary Wilson garnered because of Beck name dropping him, he ended up coming out of retirement and making more music and he's still performing and doing things today. Like, ever since he put out You Think You Really Know Me, he's put out more than 10 new albums starting in 2003. And he just put out a new album last year in 2020. So I think, like, kind of starting that discussion of, like, being in the wrong place at the right time or right place or wrong time or, or whatever, you know, I think a lot of the time it can, it, can, it can kind of lie on the shoulders of future generations of artists yeah. to appreciate the older stuff for that older stuff to even come into the limelight in the first place. Like right now we're seeing that part of the, um, I guess you could say like the counterculture of today is very like soft, mellow music, very like easygoing, chill kind of stuff. And I can think of two artists off the top of my head that very much embody that kind of a style from the, like the right sound at the wrong time. And that was like the folk movement of the 60s through the 70s. Um, there was an artist that was like best good friends with Donovan. And her name is uh, Vashti Bunyan. And she ended up releasing a ton of music um, as a grandmother in like recent years. There was an album that I just acquired called Looked After During. And it has um, paintings made by her daughter on it. And I think that's really interesting. And also Margot Garayan, both of these two artists in their time were not really well received. They never really kicked it off, but they were trying to be like the new, like a Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks, and it just never was well received until, I guess, somehow someone 
discovered them. And I guess that was the original question that I just couldn't, like my brain short-circuited there. But I guess the question is like, how do these old artists that nobody knows about end up become famous, becoming famous again? Like, how do you find those samples? Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really interesting thing. And I mean, I, I think putting it back into context with the whole thing I was saying earlier about the fact that, you know, music in general, music culture relies on context. Uh, and it really just takes one or two people that have an above average passion or even obsession with music to kind of just dig through things. You know, uh, you know, my favorite my favorite song of all time is At the River by Groove Armada. Nice. And when when most people <laughs> nice. Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, that used to be my closing song on uh, my radio show, which is kind of a meme, but also kind of not a meme. I don't know. That's old but, Cape Cod as the sample, right? Yeah, exactly. And so the sample, that the main sample that forms the structure of that song, especially the vocals, uh, come from an old Patty Page song called Old yeah. Cape Cod. And there's a lot of things surrounding the... Re- there are a lot of things that make this my favorite song, but the thing about it is that when you hear somebody talk about their favorite song or their favorite artist, usually there's a sentimental reason or a sentimental value or something super meaningful about that song, right? The thing about At The River is that the first time I heard it, it wasn't really in any order, any sort of special circumstance. I don't really associate it with a significant point in my life other than my radio show. I didn't really like hear it because I'm another person or hear it in some sort of like super ridiculous, you know, movie-like romantic context. It's just a song that I heard, and then I ended up really liking it. And the more time that has passed, and the more that I've figured out or you know researched about it, that's when the meaning has kind of started to come back. And when I first heard it, I knew that they probably sampled something from somewhere. But I had no idea that the sample was from a song by Patti Page in the 1950s. Right? That never would have even crossed my mind. And for Groove Armada to have gotten that sample... You have to start thinking, well, obviously, they've done some digging of their own, and maybe, you know, Patty Page's music uh, is significant to them. Or maybe they just heard it somewhere, and they thought it was really cool or really interesting. And whatever meaning that that rhythm or that melody or the vocals held to them, right, they were able to incorporate that into their own version of that. And so going back to the whole Beck thing, too, and just, you know, any artist that you can think of where in an interview that kind of name drops some of their inspirations. I would follow up on some of those. Like any artist that you like really love to follow, if they say that they were inspired by somebody, chances are half the time you're not even going to hear those influences in their music in the ways that you're expecting. Sometimes they can come in ways that you might not be expecting or in ways that, you know, are kind of unconventional. And so I really think it takes a music fan or somebody who's passionate about music in a lot of cases to go digging and bring that stuff into the forefront because nobody else is going to do that. Yeah, I would I would say that um, specifically you and I are probably at the cusp of the analog era uh, generation. I don't know what you would what else you'd call that. What are we like millennials, Gen Z? Yeah, it's like something. we're we're hovering in that weird limbo period between we could be millennials or we could be Gen Z, depending on who you ask. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we basically grew up in the time where the internet and just like digital formats and, and CDs even. Very young. Yeah, very, like very young. Those things were just starting to become things. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I was too young to remember any sort of that transi- transitionary period. Like most of my most significant memories start when I was like 10, 10 years old, right? Mm. But I remember even as a kid, like we had floppy disks in the house that we, we did. actively used. Uh, we yeah. had C- I had a portable CD player that I got from my grandparents that I used to play CDs on. We had Back in the day, that was games. literally like that was literally like the peak technology for portable music playing, besides yeah. like a car radio. And like vinyl, I remember my father had a stack of vinyl records that like this. This pains me saying this, and I know that if he's listening right now, <laughs> he would. Like, oh, but like, long story short, we had a a turntable. I'm pretty sure it was an Audio Technica too, and um, he ended up getting rid of it because, like, that was when, like, the future was going in the direction that it was, and like, finals were turning into CDs, and CDs were turning into MP3s, and MP3s were turning into streaming services to the point that 
I had an existential crisis maybe a couple months ago because my eight-year-old uh, cousin was like, oh, look, a CD. I've never seen one of these before. And I'm like, what do you, you've never seen, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was a whole thing. But like, it's, I think that our generation is probably the reason that analog themed everything is alive and well and thriving. Like your lo-fi chilled music, the sampling of older music like the overlays of the 90s the polaroid filters the vinyl records and and cultural staples of that time era are kept alive solely through us because of that appreciation of of doing things and being part of the experience the sensory of laying down those records the the feeling of uh you know holding the Polaroid and getting all excited and waiting for it to develop and stuff like that. And I think yeah. that's probably why we sample all of the, the old music. And I think that people like musicians today are still uh, crate digging and looking for those samples. And I guess part of it is like um, luck of the draw, no? Like, like hoping that whatever crazy record you just picked up is going to be the one with that sound. Yeah. I mean, you know that I love to tell this story because, you know, it's basically the main inspiration behind my radio segment, but I think something that kind of sums up or like a singular story in a vacuum that kind of, you know, symbolizes everything that you just pointed out about, you know, our generation or maybe the generation that came directly before us, but just the fact that like, you know, this, this analog age has kind of started to die out and there's still diehard fans of analog things is, is DJ shadow. And, you know, talking about lo-fi hip hop and talking about samples, you know, DJ shadow in part is one of the people that's responsible for having all of that lo-fi stuff even exist to this day. You know, he's one of the progenitors of lo-fi hip hop. Was he like one of the founding fathers of that movement? I, I, in a way, I would say yes. Uh, I don't think that he was the first to do it. And I definitely think that there are many other people that you could credit with helping start that movement. Probably but the Moby whole, too. Yeah, Moby, absolutely. Um, but I think to, to summarize the story and not go too long with it, because I could tell the story until I die and not get tired of telling the story. Right? DJ Shadow's whole thing. Uh, in the 90s, he put out an album called Introducing. And Introducing was one of the first true blue instrumental hip-hop albums like anything that you heard on that album wasn't original material at all pretty much everything on it was sample based it was it was plunder phonics and he made it with only a couple of pieces of equipment one of them being a sampler and so you listen to the album for the first time and if you don't know the context you might not understand why it's so special right but dj shadow has been an, an avid collector of records for his entire life basically and he's, he's relatively young. I mean, he's like older now. He's like 30s, 40s. But back in the day, you know, he used to go shopping for records all the time. He would spend hours of his time in a record store every week. And this one particular record store said, hey, listen, you shop here all the time. We have a basement full of stuff that we either can't sell or we don't want to sell because it's too rare or it's too weird or it's too damaged or nobody's going to want to buy it. Right. So if you want to go down there and you want to look for stuff, you go ahead. And basically what he did is he dug around in that basement at the record store, pulled maybe like 35 to 40 albums that he ended up really liking, and made that entire introducing album with nothing but samples from those albums that he found. And so I think, you know, that kind of sums up that whole, that whole passion for digging through older music that we were kind of just talking about, you know? Yeah, it, I think that album has... Uh, Midnight in a Perfect World and Building Steam with a Grain of Salt, if I yeah. recall correctly. Also, Organ Donor, which is a good pun. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good album. Um, I guess it's it's interesting about the action of going into a record store and trying to find those like obscure, weird samples and in hopes that the one that you just picked up is the one. There was, um, this is like um, the inverse of that. And I'm going to tell a quick story because like this happened like last Sunday or whatever, but I went into um, an antique store 
And I was specifically just looking for any albums that like were obscure and I knew what I was looking for. And there was an album that was getting sold, I kid you not, for like $10. And it was Pete Drake with his talking slide guitar. That is amazing. That blew my mind because that album is like, it's worth nothing to most people. But if you go on YouTube and you like try to look up the like really obscure sounds like that, he's like one of the, the top ones. He's definitely starting to build that cult following um, after so many years. And the song Forever is like the song that people associate him with now. And I got that album and that just, I was like, I was telling the guy I was, as I was buying it, I was like, dude, you have no idea how important this record is. This is like the first time a talk box was used in music. And so he was like, yeah, I might just uh, mark that up now. (laughs) It's worth uh, $50 now. Yeah. It's crazy how people can, you know, misattribute value or I guess not misattribute because obviously, you know, value again is another subjective thing, but it's like the fact that you were able to walk into that, into that record store and find something for $10 that was that significant, not only to you personally, but to music history, you know, yeah. I think really just shows how perception really is, is the biggest thing. It, it takes one or two people to really, I mean, you know, for lack of a better term, give a care about something. Yeah for it to actually have any sort of meaning or value. You got to go into the joints that like the, not to say that the people don't know what they're doing, but like the people just have like so many records that they didn't bother to really go through. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. I need to get rid of all this junk. And um, like, you'll find them in like flea markets and stuff like that. And you'll be sifting through it. And sometimes you'll strike gold. There was an album I found, uh, when I do my somewhat annual trip to Northern Florida and go into like obscure towns. And um, I ended up picking up this one record that I didn't recognize. And turns out it was, um, it was a Pink Floyd record called Adam Hart Mother. And it has a cow on the front of it. And after listening to it, I, I learned there was a bunch of really great songs on it. This was like pre- dark side of the moon pre um wish you were here and like the pre the wall and i i was like wow that's so crazy cool how you can just find things like that just stacked in the middle of nowhere just it's sitting there it's collecting dust and like the the people who have it are just looking to get rid of it because it's taking up space yeah I mean, record stores in general, you know, even though there there are so many of them that just don't exist anymore. Like, I feel like unless you're living in one of those towns that that does sort of have that kind of scene, right? You're probably going to be hard pressed to find a record store. But even with so so limited options, like you know, so many limited options um, for buying records in 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 that one specific place, because obviously you could pop into like a thrift store or something and find records that people have literally trashed. You know, they're probably not going to be in the best condition, but they're there. Yeah. But it's crazy to think that you could walk into any random building uh, and just and find you, a piece of music history that, you know, people yeah. just do not realize is there. It could either like, like the thing is, unless other people have said, hey, guys, this is a really cool record that has started to get a following or like, hey, guys, check this out. It's pretty cool. There's a YouTube channel called um, Vintage Obscura, and they like just post a bunch of music that are like people have found like no name artists like literally it won't even tell you who the name of the artist was or or, like it won't tell you what year it's from and it'll just be like maybe even a one-off 45 record that wasn't even made to be released but it'll like they'll just upload that stuff and you can find a whole bunch of different records that sometimes they end up developing a cult following and that's really interesting um, I did want to talk about uh, some of the artists that, like, just for people to understand what we're talking about in terms of, like, a musical sound or, like, um, just to, like, name some names so people can go, like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, cool. What do you mean, like? Yeah, I- <laughs> <laughs> 
We need to talk about the shags. Uh, you see, that's a terrible start, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's funny because I knew you, where you were going. And I think I mentioned something earlier where you're just like, oh, I know where you're going with that, too. And it's like the shags are one of those things where, you know, you have to talk about them, but you <laughs> no. also kind of don't want to. Yeah. And it's and it's like the thing about the shags is that I think I think the main reason that I personally don't like talking about them is just because it's such a it's, it's a really sad story. It's you a know? very acquired taste and it's very sad and it's a tragedy but at the same time you know influential the album by the shags i was it was it just a self-titled album oh no it was philosophy of the world yeah 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 yeah. with my pal foot foot and Mm -hmm. and everything else and i think one of my favorite things about you know one of my favorite things about philosophy of the world (laughs) is that if anyone goes back and discovers the shags or listens to them they're immediately going to be disgusted. And I'm not even going to say like, because I know that I've been talking a lot about the subjectivity of music taste, but I, I think that 99% of people <laughs> that listen to something by the Shags for the first time are going to be disgusted. And yet, they're, you know, that album, Philosophy of the World, has been listed as Kurt Cobain's fifth favorite album of all time. It's one of Frank Zappa's favorite albums. And then you start to think, it's like, why the hell would anyone ever cite this as their favorite music? Because nobody could have ever come up with that unless it was this story, which to to spark noted and correct me if I'm wrong, it was like, um, so there were three daughters, uh, like Dodd, Betty, Helen, um, and their father had like a prophetic dream from God or something like that. And it, the message was basically like, have your daughters create a band and they'll be one of the most renowned of all time, except they never got proper musical lesson and, or like musical training. And so what they created was just like, what happens when you give people who don't know what music is instruments and you get (laughs) avant-garde, whatever ever seen. And it's the the funny thing is too, like, cause yeah, I think, I don't remember if it was like a dream or if he like talked to a fortune teller or something, but basically his, his perception of it was, Oh, I'm just going to give them the instruments and they'll know what to do with it. Like don't train them. Don't tell them anything. And it's like, if you listen, if you listen to the music, you can tell that they're trying, like you can tell that they have an idea of what they're trying to do. It's just that they don't have the musical knowledge or the technical skill to actually achieve it. And so listening to it sounds like, some of the most discordant, like ridiculous, just garbage. But like, if you listen to it, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about whether or not it's good because I don't think I can confidently say that it's good music, but it is music and it is coming from a place of genuine, like it, they are trying to make something. And I think that's the most interesting part about the shags. <laughs> I just looked into it. It was a palm reading thing. <laughs> it was a palm reading. Yeah. Like, this random dude just decided to get a palm reading <laughs> and he thought that his, his group of three daughters would be the most like, famous musicians in the world. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, his, his wish partially came true. Yeah. Uh, they do kind of have a cult following now. They do. And, uh, they're, if, if anybody has heard of that name, the shags, you and like, you know what you're talking about? People will typically go, Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like on the on the flip side of that, I guess there's like there was one band that I really think about when it comes to like obscure music like this. And um, Blockhead does a really good the musician Blockhead does a really good job at sampling. And there was a band called Fapar Dockley. I think I'm saying that right. That just it it knocks my socks off. It, well, like yeah the the album called. Fapar Dockley with the song The Music Scene is is one of those albums that knocks your socks off. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, even even from a, from a perspective of, like, not knowing, um, or rather, because we're talking about, like, source material being taken to make Blockhead's music. So, and yeah. I would imagine that 
both of us found Fopper Dockley after hearing Blockhead for the first time and not the way the yeah. other way around. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Fopper Dockley is that with a lot of times I feel like personally when I when I hear something in, in old music that I'm just like immediately like, oh man, I recognize that. That's a sample that this person took. Yeah. Very, very rarely do I ever feel compelled to go back and actually listen to the source material in its entirety. But that album specifically, like the Fapper Dockley album, is one where it's like you hear it and you're like, this is something that like is actually really good. It was like a psychedelic folk thing. I feel like, um, yeah, so the, the main guy, uh, Meryl Fankhauser, left a, like band that, yeah. Called, yeah, left a band called The Impacts and merged it with a bunch of other different people. And it's like a, an anagram of like all of their last names spliced into one word. And um, goodness, that album is really cool. And I appreciate Blockhead quite a bit among... Uh, the avalanches and DJ Shadow for sampling some really cool stuff. It's genuinely one of my favorite things in music, for sure. I had to, I ended up having to start a playlist because it happened to me like three times in one day, and I was like, "There's no way that I can't document this," you know, yeah. like, and you know, even when it comes to um, e- even when the samples themselves aren't necessarily from some sort of super obscure place, it's still a really nice feeling when you can trace a sample back to the source material and understand the significance of it. Right. Yeah. And so one of my favorite things to blow people's minds, uh, is the song, um, uh, paper planes by MIA. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause that's a super famous song. You know, it was very popular when it first came out. It's still very popular today. Cash register. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, it's um, isn't it? Yeah, so the sample, the main, like, basically the entire core of the song is taken straight from a song off of Combat Rock by The Clash called Straight to Hell. Mm-hmm. And and the thing about it is, too, is that The Clash isn't, like, some super obscure band. Like, The Clash is pretty popular. I feel like many people who are into music, especially, like, rock music from, like, the 70s and 80s, would be familiar with The Clash, at least to a degree. And yeah. yet, even still, it's one of those songs where you tell them, hey, this is a sample from a Clash song and it still completely blows them away because they never realized it or they had never heard the original song before, Yeah, which is crazy. And I think that samples in general, you know, besides the, the whole factor of like, oh, this is a really cool thing to do and it's keeping the music alive. Like it's also in a lot of in a lot of cases, I feel like can serve as a way for people to go back and really just find new stuff that they never would have heard otherwise. Yeah. Even like retro futurism in things like Bioshock or for instance, uh, this is a completely different <laughs> genre of, uh, of a show that I have called the post-apocalypse and you, but um, like songs from fallout and the fallout series and the Bioshock series, I think also do justice um, in high school. I used to hear because I, that's when I started getting into swing music and stuff like that. Heavy. And I would have people go up to me and be like, hey, I heard that song in New Vegas or something like that. And we got into a discussion over that. And that's how I made some fast friends. I think when you can take music and you can use it for a very specific aesthetic purpose or to, you know, kind of like give somebody a message as to what you're trying to convey through that music. It's like, like a language need... theory. Or right, like exactly. Curation. Right. And I think that's one of the best things about sampling in general is just repurposing something to either, you know, highlight the meaning that it has or give it a completely new meaning. Yeah. And you're, you're definitely sending a new message every time that you take those old samples and you're bringing it into the forefront. Whenever the avalanches or blockhead or, or whoever, or DJ shadow tries to take those old samples and purpose them into a new light it's basically conveying those old emotions and making it nostalgic so like since i left you for example banger i know you like that one absolutely uh, (laughs) it's like not only are you getting that feel-good feeling of of the music that was sampled but you're also getting the the nostalgia the singer's like nostalgia for 
their like ex lover, I guess, through using old music and like, you know, you get those like warm feelings of like looking back on the past by using old music from the past. I guess powerful emotion. I mean, nostalgia is a powerful emotion. Like it's true. And the thing about it too is that you know, nostalgia I think can manifest in a lot of forms. I think I think part of the reason why people like lo-fi music so much, or why people like you know samples of older music, even if they don't even know what that music is, all all that they know is that it sounds old, or it sounds like it came from a period that was way in the past. And even if you personally don't have any sort of nostalgic connection to those eras, I think that feeling of nostalgia can still shine through pretty profoundly, and that can and that can make you you know feel nostalgic for things that you've never experienced just through the power of music. There's a word for that that I can't remember. When you feel nostalgia for things you didn't experience. Yeah, I'm not sure what the actual term for it is, but I mean, I think that, you know, people, you know, know, artists like the caretaker, the projects that they put out, artists like the avalanches, artists like even Panda Bear with that one uh, Plunder Phonics album that he put out. It's a huge... It's a, there's a huge market for it in the sense that people, I feel like, really enjoy feeling those feelings of nostalgia. And if they yeah. can't get it from, you know, stuff in their own life, or if they're not feeling nostalgia for things anymore, like, it can come in, I guess my point is it can come from places that you're not expecting. And samples are one of the biggest places for me, personally, where that nostalgia comes from. I have a two-parter question. So, first of all, how where do you think the... Um, this old genre of like obscure music is going to like what other genres of music will this influence and where do you where do you think that like vintage uh, music of yesteryear is going to progress its way into the future if at all that's a good question you know now that I think about it yeah this whole this whole idea of lost treasures from the past, right? Or vintage music in the first place. You know, as we move on, that's not really going to be as much of a thing anymore. Because I feel like, I mean, obviously there's always going to be artists that you can discover from in the past. Because there's, again, there's just so much music out there that it's impossible to cover all of it. Um, But yeah, you know, I think that there is going to hit a point where there are diminishing returns in the sense of, you know, oh, I, I found this amazing artist from the 1930s to the 1940s that nobody's ever heard of. And, you know, they were doing things that were super influential and super experimental and cool. To the point where, like, I don't know where things are going to go. I feel like people are going to take influence. I feel like there are a lot of artists today in the mainstream that are kind of trying to keep some of those things alive. Some of them are doing it more subtly, you know, obviously, like, using vintage imagery or trying to you know, sound like Led Zeppelin in the case of Greta Van Fleet. Uh, but there are other artists that are pretty much 100% kind of committing themselves to fitting into the tropes of those genres. I, there's, a, there's a guy that, the, the name of him escapes me, but he is literally a modern artist, and he's a young guy too. He's like maybe like in his, in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, and pretty much his entire shtick is that he records and writes music that sounds like it came straight out of the 40s and 50s. Like, he is, he is like the crooner. That's cool. Sort of, yeah, and you know, his name? Michael gotta, Buble. No. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Definitely well, but not. Michael Buble is actually a good, a good artist to bring up in the sense that, like, yeah, he's not necessarily, like, his music isn't necessarily the exact same, but I think he would probably be one of the the biggest modern examples of like a crooner. He's like one of the yeah. few ones that we have left, you know? Yeah. Other than um, like Frankie Valley or um, Tony Bennett, he's truly one of the last of the crooners that exist in the modern era or even Jeff Goldblum. Ironic. Right. Did you know <laughs> Jeff Goldblum was a, a jazz man? I did not know that actually. He has an album like no joke. It's actually really good. With uh, Cantaloupe Island and stuff like that. Jeff Goldblum, really? Yeah. Yeah, no joke. That's actually pretty cool. I didn't know that. It's called uh, Jeff Goldblum and the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra with the Capitol Record Sessions. Amy Reinhardt is on that album. Really good. Really powerful stuff. 
It's good, this, genuinely. And like this no is the joke. Kind of stuff that I wish people would like kind of dig into more in this in a sense. You know? Like I yeah. think man, you know, music. He's got is like a Dave Brubeck kind of a thing going on. But yeah, I mean going back to the question, you know, with with the fact that vinyl is starting to resurge, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a lot of other kind of trends come back into fashion uh from the past. Cause I mean there's a lot of people that like, you know, want to get into swing music again. Or swing dancing again. Like they have they literally have swing dancing classes in 2021. Which I feel like really? Yeah. I like people people are into it. You know, people are into vintage things. I mean, just the fact that you even have <laughs> you know this this whole this whole network of bootleggers broadcast in the first place. Hey-o. I think just goes to show that there are plenty of people out there that have young. an appreciation who are yeah. young who have an appreciation for this older music and these older you know artistic kind of tropes and and just aesthetic choices. You know, I'm seeing a lot of in the counterculture of our generation. Not to put a label on our entire generation, but like I'm starting to see that there is a movement. Um, I guess like, I guess on one end you could call it like the cottage core kind of a movement where <laughs> where people uh, are starting to escape the city and suburbia and pushing back into rural environments to live off of the land in like in all of its simplicity. And I find that to be interesting because we're starting to like return back to tradition in that sense. And like there's there's people who want to like live that old school life and that old school lifestyle, even if it's just listening to the music or um you know dressing up in like uh seventies and eighties fashion or or going to thrift stores and buying the old clothes and stuff, like our generation very much uh is nostalgic of things that sometimes we weren't even a part of. <laughs> the whole cottage core thing, bootleggers broadcast, just the fact that there are so many young people that like are they're not even doing it like as like a trendy thing. Like they they genuinely are interested in the way that things used to be musically and everything that kind of surrounded that music at the in the first place. Um it, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think that also at the same time we're seeing a, a movement where like um, rock of the the seventies is making an, its own influence. Like our generation, um, men, for instance, are very much like growing out their beards and like embracing that old tradition, or like wearing clothes that embody like rock of the era, like uh, like the M one field jackets and like the um like the tight jeans and boots and and Doc Martens and things like that. Right, like a yeah. very specific aesthetic. Yeah, and you know it's 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 kind of weird to think about because I feel like people have always said that music is kind of a product of its time, right? It, it's kind of, like music is kind of a product of everything that's been going on at the time period that it was made, and so now you start to think about modern music and the way that things are kind of regressing towards it's older kind of trends. vintage. It's kind of vintage, but at the same time, kind of you retro. have a very modern influence in a lot of spheres as well. Yeah. And so it, it it almost kind of feels like there's been like a merging of the timelines or some or yeah. some event like that where it's always, everything is kind of existing at the same time. And so music is just going in like every single direction. Even back in the day, though, I would say that like musical influence has been inspired by other musical influence. Like specifically, if you look at um, blues records by like Lead Belly and um, Robert Johnson and like a bunch of different Delta blues musicians. They would be late or uh, blind Willie McTell. Like they would, they would be later picked up by uh, classic rock musicians within like the span of the '60s through even the '90s. I.e., um, Led Zeppelin covering "When the Levee Breaks," um, uh, Kurt Cobain covering "Where Did You Sleep Last Night." The the list goes on. I'm sure there's hundreds of examples that I'm definitely just like not thinking of right now. But I think that like we go through cycles and I think that right now our big thing is like really uh, holding on to the past. But I feel like 
when things like this happen, there's usually a force that pushes clear through this and something new emerges. Right now we're starting to see how, like what happens when you merge bluegrass of all things with rock and roll and you get um, indie rock. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, um, ironically enough, if you go into Nashville, Tennessee, before the Grand Ole Opry was a thing, there was a thing called the Ryman Auditorium. And like that was the venue that you would go to if you wanted to see country musicians. But once they built the Opry, or, or rather once they decided to transition to it, the Ryman was left abandoned. Like immediately after the, uh, the Johnny Cash show decided to, you know, stop airing. So then they were going to tear it down, but a bunch of the Nashville musicians were like, no, don't do that. We need to save it. And so they all pitched in and they saved the Ryman, but it's become a hipster venue of all things. And if you want to hear a funny story, (laughs) I actually played at the Ryman. You really did? Yeah. I played guitar in the Ryman. That is pretty awesome. What was the context for that? Like, you're not getting it. No, I, uh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right no. Before, no one knows. I, I, um, I broke so, in late one night and I played for an audience of nobody. Yeah. I, I decided to break into the Ryman. Uh, uh, there's Tennessee police officers who are still looking for me with a $50, $50,000, uh, ransom. Yeah. Mike's no. not your real name. <laughs> no, <laughs> my real name is beep, 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 beep. my address is beep, 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 beep. What um what happened was when you go into the Ryman Auditorium, this was like like right before the pandemic in uh, late 2019, like that December. Um, I was taking a tour of Nashville because I wanted to see what it was all about. And when I went into the auditorium, they had like this booth inside of it. And so they were like, hey, so we have like a couple songs here. You get to pick which one. And so. I have a recording of myself um, playing Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash on a hollow body guitar. And that was an incredible experience. I also got to like take a picture up on the stage and everything else. It's you feel that history when you're there. It's it's awesome. But if you look at like the venue of who was there, it's all indie artists. Like it's um like two door cinema club and like black keys and and Arctic monkeys and things like that and you're like what are what are you doing in Nashville, but that's where it's going. Bluegrass and rock are have merged into um into indie culture, and bluegrass uh, lives in the Ryman as well. Bluegrass never goes anywhere; it just kind of moseys along. And bluegrass is fun. If you don't listen to bluegrass, give it a listen. It's pretty nice, actually. If you're not, if you don't listen to bluegrass, you're not allowed to my house. You're not allowed to uh, drink any soda. (laughs) (laughs) You're not allowed to drink soda when you come over. Bluegrass is one of those rare genres that just feels untouched by time as it goes along. Mostly, yeah. There's like been like tiny little changes here and there, but for the most part. It's relatively the same. Even when like Steve Martin decided to walk into bluegrass, he didn't really take it in a different direction. He just put his own little oomph into it. But it's always been a, I don't want to say an aggressive genre of music, but it's a very quick, fast paced and like straight from the heart storytelling. Right. What you see is what you get. You're just going to get a bunch of um, very talented musicians who have hyper-focused on playing the mandolin and the banjo and guitar. And they're telling you a story that is most likely their own life experience. Bluegrass, give it a listen. But yeah, is there anything else that you want to talk about on this subject? We could go into some Louie Louie if you really wanted to. Uh, Do tell. Just kind of like uh, icing on the cake. As a bonus. Yeah. Tell me about, wait, Louie Louie as in... The band, or as in the song, as in the, the band, or as okay. in the man behind the touchy, the touchy uh, to be <laughs> a touchy, <laughs> you have to have a sick guitar solo. 
I don't even Wait, know no, why. It's like trumpet solo. A wild trumpet introduction. <laughs> yeah. You know, as, just as a bonus, just as just as like a as kind of like a cap to everything to end on like a, I guess kind of a funnier note. Very recently, I discovered a man named Louie Louie. That's L U I E L U I E. And in 1974, uh, he put out a song, part of an entire album, mind you, called El Touchy. And the reminds touchy, me a lot of Herp Albert and the two on a brass, but like, but like actually Mexican. <laughs> yeah, but like actually like off the chain, totally like, what am I listening to? But in the best of ways. Yeah, it's like it's one of those things that kind of just hit me because I never thought that something like this could exist. And yet it does. And it's it's actually not that bad if you really stop and listen to it. But basically, Louis Louis is this man who is who is who is very confident in his abilities. Uh, and, and you get the you get the sense of that, because basically every single song on that album that that the L touchy comes from, that the touchy comes from, he has like a little foreword little introduction. And so if you listen to that first if you listen to that first song titled El Touchy, the Touchy is a dance that he invented. And it's is it? Yeah, and it's <laughs> who knows, man. But <laughs> the idea is that he wants people to get together and dance and touch at the same time. So he says you can do it ear to ear, you can do it foot to nose, you can do it whatever. I guess anything goes as long as you're touching, but this man has this introduction on this song where he, he says that he recorded every single instrument that you're about to hear. And he wants to be he wants the touchy to be played everywhere and in every context. And then he launches into one of the saddest trumpet solos I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> it's just uh, him in a room with a guitar, a drum kit, like a looks like a marimba synth. Yep. He, I think he name drops Moog synthesizers. He literally says like I play the trumpet, I play the guitar, I play the Moog synthesizer. Yeah. He's very he's very specific about his setup. And you have to have a killer dr- like trumpet solo and he just, Yeah, that's his that's his requirement for a touchy. In order for it to be a touchy, it must have a wild trumpet introduction. I highly recommend it's a looking time. up L Touchy by by Louis Louis. I really hope that I can grab hold of this. Is this new or is this like no, this came out in, in 1974. Oh my goodness. Like I that's exactly it. Like it Adam not for nothing, but there is seven for sale on Discogs and they're going for like 20 <laughs> books. <laughs> I might just have to pick one up. Oh man. Uh, I I need to not release this exact um recording until we collectively buy them. Yeah, we got to save them all for ourselves. Yeah, oh, I man. I just sank all my money into all of the caretaker records. Uh, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the touchy. How did how did the touchy not become such a popular? Like, why are we not doing the touchy right now in twenty twenty one? That's what I'm <laughs> is saying. <it>, Normalize <laughs> is a good, is a good doing for that. the touchy, but uh, <laughs> by Louis Louis. Yeah, that's why. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that that basically says it all. I got nothing else to. Uh, I got nothing else to say about that. Well, there you go. As always, thank you all for your continuous support. Thank you for listening to Bootleggers Broadcast on Live 365. Feel free to listen to our live stream. Check us out on across all of our social media platforms and keep in touch or touchy through linktree.com slash bootlegger broadcast. Have a wonderful evening and a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you, Adam, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.